Hello everyone and welcome to this uh, Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition uh, podcast. Today we're in conversation with Professor Gordon Smith uh, regarding his leading article in the July edition of the journal entitled The Role of Prenatal Steroids at 34 to 36 Weeks of Gestation. Thank you, uh, Professor Smith, for, for joining us today. Um, could you just give us a, a little brief summary of who you are and what you do? So I am Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Cambridge University and I work as a consultant in maternal fetal medicine at Hendricks Hospital. My research is really around trying to understand the causes and potential predictors of adverse pregnancy outcome uh, and I've also done work on the fetal preparation for birth, uh, particularly uh, perinatal cardiovascular adaptation at the time of birth. Just to get straight into the conversation, the article is obviously about the role of prenatal steroids in the moderate preterm, but just to take a broader view, could you outline for everyone what the current established role of antenatal steroids in preterm birth actually is? Giving steroids in the context of threatened preterm delivery uh, is one of the most effective things we can do in perinatal medicine. Your steroids are given to the mother, they cross the placenta, uh, part of the normal fetal preparation for birth is for the adrenal gland to produce increasing amounts of cortisol, and the cortisol has effects on multiple fetal organs, which are preparative for birth, the most obvious being reduction of surfactant in the lungs. So, so currently it's well recognised that where there's a high risk of uh, preterm birth, uh, giving antenatal steroids really results in significant reduction in both severe short-term uh, adverse outcomes, including death, and also uh, in beneficial effects in the long term. So there's no question in the context of severe preterm delivery, uh, steroids are a helpful intervention. And when we're talking about preterm delivery, could you refresh our memory of the definitions and where the evidence has placed us in terms of what the gestations we're talking about in terms of the administration of, of antenatal steroids? So obviously preterm birth overall is in any delivery prior to 37 uh, weeks of gestational age. There are different ways that people will divide up the degrees of prematurity, but we would think of delivery between 34 and 36 weeks as being mild prematurity. Uh, and people would frequently talk about 29 to 33 weeks as being moderate, and then 28 weeks and earlier as being extreme preterm delivery. And the sort of current recommendations around steroids vary from one another, but our own policy here would be to use steroids uh, prior to 34 weeks. Uh, and the, the, the study that was published in the Journal of Medicine that the editorial addresses was about the use of steroids in the mild preterm deliveries between 34 and 36 weeks. Before we get on to the discussion of that a particular study and the emerging evidence, could you, again, just to, to refresh people's memory, run us through the biology of, of antenatal steroids and the reasons behind the choices of antenatal steroids and, and what they do and what potential effects they have on the fetus outside of the respiratory system? Yeah, this, this, is, the really, this is one of the really fascinating aspects of it, is that the, the choice of the two steroids that we use clinically for lung, to accelerate lung maturation are betamethasone and dexamethasone. Uh, and the choice of these steroids is purposeful because uh, they can cross the placenta. So for most steroids that we give to mothers, they can't cross the placenta because they're actually metabolized, and that's by an enzyme called 11-beta-HSE2. So something like prednisolone, for example, less than 10% of prednisolone uh, will cross over to the placenta because it gets metabolized by 11-beta-HSE2. And the same would be true of, uh, say, hydrocortisone. Uh, and this, the presence of 11-beta-HSE2 in the placenta isn't accidental. It's there to stop the baby being exposed to the mother's increase in corticosteroids because corticosteroids have such a profound effect. So the body has put 
a barrier in place to protect the baby from the mother's steroids, 11-BTHFC2. And obviously with chemistry, we can overcome that by giving betamethasone or dexamethasone, which are resistant to the enzyme. But the really crucial point is that the baby's brain uh, is also another site where there are high levels of 11-beta-HSD2 in the cerebellum. You then have to think, why does the fetal brain have this enzyme present in the brain? And the, the thinking would be that the 11-beta-HSD2 in the brain protects the baby from the rise in cortisol that occurs in late gestation. So in preparation for birth, the adrenal gland of the fetus produces increasing amounts of cortisol, that goes to tissues like the lung to increase surfactant. But the, the body has set up the brain to be protected from that physiological surge in cortisol by having high levels of 11-beta-HSD2 in the baby's brain. The concern then comes that we are using drugs, betamethasone and dexamethasone, that have been designed to overcome uh, this enzyme because they're not resistant to metabolism by the enzyme. We do that because we have to if we're going to cross the placenta. But actually in doing this, we then also disable the normal protective mechanism that stops the brain being activated by corticosteroids because these drugs are resistant to 11-BTHSD2. So the concern here is that if we give steroids in late gestation, and sometimes in the context of prior to planned cesarean section, even in early weeks of gestation at term, we may be having beneficial effects on the lungs, but we are creating a completely unphysiological activation of the glucocorticoid receptor in the baby's brain. Uh, and really, there are data from animal studies that suggest that the effects of steroid exposure in that context are lifelong in terms of altering gene expression. And then that has to raise the concern that exposing large numbers of human babies in late gestation to these steroids has the potential to be harmful in respect to possible effects in the brain in the long term. Could you just describe to us briefly what the emerging evidence is on the use of prenatal steroids in advancing gestation? The issue with steroids, as I say, it's very clear where there's an extreme preterm gestational age that steroids are beneficial because the sorts of things that happen to babies at those gestational ages are so severe that any sort of theoretical long-term concern about effects in the brain are outweighed by the, 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 whether the baby lives or dies, for example. And also other complications associated with extreme prematurity, such as uh, intracranial hemorrhage or the baby becoming hypoxic, will themselves have adverse effects in the brain, you know, which might remove these sort of theoretical concerns. The whole of perinatal medicine is around looking intelligently at what's happening at gestational age. And because the absolute risk of these very severe complications becomes smaller and smaller the closer you get to term, the, the potential for steroids to have a very significant benefit diminishes as you get closer to term, and therefore you can't make the assumption that the short-term beneficial effect of the steroid uh, is going to be something that's worth taking that long-term risk for. And in terms of the actual randomised controlled trials that, that have been recent, well, I say recently published in 2016, mm-hmm. could you just briefly outline what that study had, had set out to achieve and what its major findings were, just for people who aren't necessarily familiar with that particular study? As I say, there's good evidence that you would give steroids at extreme preterm gestation ages. What these authors set out to do was to look at the context of late preterm delivery. So they looked at women who have a high risk of preterm delivery uh, between 34 and 36 weeks gestational age. And then they looked at the risk of composite adverse neonatal outcome. Uh, and what they found, uh, so the primary outcome for the trial was the need for respiratory support uh, three days after delivery. In the steroid-treated children, this was 11.6%, uh, whereas it was 14.4% with the placebo, and that was a statistically significant difference. 
But the real issue with this is that the number needed to treat, the number of children who need to be exposed to steroids, so one child to be prevented from having this primary outcome, was 35. So for every one child who benefits, there are 34 children who are steroid exposed who didn't. And then the second aspect of this is, whereas the randomized controlled trials of steroids at extreme pre-term gestations were showing differences in things like death and long-term disability. And what this was looking at was the requirement for respiratory support three days after delivery. So what you're looking at is having to treat a very large number of children in order to prevent one child having a complication which we wouldn't regard as being particularly severe. And that's when you then have to look at what the potential long-term effects, uh, because you, you, it's not the same as the pre extreme pre-term context, where you, you, you're going to put your concerns about the long-term effects to one side, because the short-term effects is not having steroids are so severe. Am I right in saying there are currently no studies which have looked at, and just to be clear, the, the study that you mentioned um, uh, was published in the New England Journal in 2016, and it had a primarily short-term outcome and no long-term outcome published in, in the paper. And to my knowledge, and perhaps you can correct me, there are, are there any studies which have looked at long-term outcome with late prenatal steroids? Yes, so there was a, there was a randomised controlled trial of uh, steroids prior to planned cesarean section um, at either 37 or 38 weeks of gestational age. So the, the sort of issue there is that babies live by elective cesarean section rates of transient tachypnea of the newborn, as you know. Um, the ideal time to do a cesarean section is 39 weeks, so the absolute risk of that outcome uh, is low and generally quoted around 4%. The risk of that outcome approximately doubles for every week earlier that you do it. So you have higher, you know, quite significant rates of transient tachypnea of the newborn at 37 and 38 weeks of gestational age. The randomised controlled trial demonstrated, the published in the BMJ, demonstrated that there was a, a reduced risk of transient tachypnea of the newborn in the short term. Now, these authors did perform a long-term follow-up. Uh, and when they followed up the children years later, interestingly, they didn't see any long-term benefit of the steroids. So one of the thoughts I think that they had when they set up the trial was that maybe uh, preventing that respiratory morbidity in the neonatal period might reduce respiratory complications to the child in later life. But actually, the, the long-term follow-up study uh, failed to demonstrate that. The only significant difference between the steroid-exposed children and the non-steroid-exposed children was uh, a slightly increased rate of worse performance in school amongst the steroid-exposed children. So that was the kind of only signal that we saw, which actually was um, a negative effect of the long-term steroids in relation to school performance, which, given the context we've discussed, or potential adverse effects of steroids in the brain, it does raise that concern that the theoretical, sort of biological reasons for thinking there might be an issue, you might actually manifest it in higher rates of complications. And so again, in that trial, you've got having to treat large numbers of children to prevent a relatively mild adverse outcome with the concern of long-term harm. You make a very good point in the leading article regarding really the nature of the application of evidence or the um, absence of evidence and the, the evidence of absence. These two studies have certainly in departments that I've been involved with have been used as a justification perhaps of, of changing policy from the delivery of a perinatal service. What do you think in terms of the, the difficulties in applying evidence at this level to current practice and really can we start to apply evidence when actually there's been some evidence of benefit, but some would say, well, there's no evidence of harm. So it's one of the things we're going to do in the article, and it's a, it really goes down to the very core of evidence-based medicine. And it's, there's no part of this where we would be saying that evidence, you know, doing randomised controlled trials is a bad thing. 
The thing that we would be concerned about is you take a very complicated question and you reduce it down to one thing, and that is what did the trial show? Because the, to think, if you approach the question and think the only information that you can use is the information that comes from a randomized controlled trial, you're, you're ignoring the fact that trials themselves are limited. Trials uh, are generally going to be powered for outcomes that are more common. So it's going to be a problem if you're trying to do a trial for an outcome that's rare. And it's very expensive to follow up trial participants in the long term. So trials, although they provide, you know, very, they, they, in terms of the internal validity of the study, that is, how true is it that any particular comparison is likely to be correct, they are very good. But in a sense, they're actually biased. Uh, not biased in that you'll infer the wrong conclusion within the context of that trial, but they're biased to look at outcomes which are common and are in the short term. And so the danger is that you have the very highest level of evidence to support a beneficial effect, which is common and occurs in the short term, and which may not actually be particularly important. And you have an absence of evidence about rarer outcomes and the outcomes that occur in the long term. Now, if you look at it and you think about it and you say there's an absence of evidence, you're going to, you're going to say, well, we don't know that this is safe. But you know, there's, a, there's a very nice um, perspective article in JAMA, uh, which is entitled The Six Most Dangerous Floods in Evidence-Based Medicine, which are, there is, uh, there's no evidence to show that. And you can't take the absence of evidence as being the same as the evidence of absence. That is, if we just don't know, we should say we don't know. We shouldn't say there's no evidence to suggest that there's harm. We should just say we don't know whether there's harm or not. And that, that's really the sort of wider thing about this, that we quite properly prioritise evidence that comes from randomised controlled trials. But where there is no evidence from a trial, and where there's you know, other evidence that suggests a concern, we shouldn't start conflating not knowing uh, with uh, knowing that there's no effect. Well, thank you very much, Professor Smith, for a sort of fascinating discussion. The article is currently in this July's edition of the journal, and as before, there are many ways to interact with the article and with the journal via Facebook and Twitter. And the Twitter handle is at ADC underscore FN. And my Twitter handle is at Jonathan underscore Davis 3. And I'm sure this will generate a great deal of discussion uh, both now and in the future. So thank you again, Professor Smith.